0: The following sermon was recorded at Chiang Mai Christian Fellowship in Chiang Mai, Thailand. For more information, please view our website at www.ccfth.org. When we think about things from a human perspective, do we like to strain and exert ourselves and feel like we're not making any headway in life? or it would be better sometimes to just win the big prize let's be honest who wouldn't like to win the big prize just once is it echoing because I'm getting a little bit of echo wouldn't it be great to win the super lottery just once maybe pick the numbers 4, 8, 15, 16 23 and 42 my only suggestion is if you play those numbers don't go on an airplane soon thereafter and if you do when you start experiencing a lot of turbulence and wake up on a tropical island um, hopefully I haven't lost anybody with that analogy outside of putting a small amount of money on a lottery ticket there's no effort involved it could result in a great reward and it doesn't mean we have to be selfish with what we win we could use it for our ministry Think about what CCF could do with that type of winning. We could purchase land and build our own building that doesn't have cracks in the gymnasium, that has classrooms that will better suit our children, that has a sanctuary with good acoustics so we don't get the constant echo, echo, echo. We could bless our family But how many times have we read or heard about those that win the big lottery going broke? Some statistics, 70% of lottery winners end up bankrupt within five years of a large financial windfall. Lottery winners are more likely to declare bankruptcy within three to five years than the average American and nearly 33% of all people who play and win the lottery declare bankruptcy at some time. Here are a few examples William Post the in 1988 won 16.2 million dollars but just three months after winning that lottery he experienced crime, bankruptcy, poor spending decisions such as the purchase of a restaurant and an airplane he was half a million dollars in debt and filed for bankruptcy in the early 1990s. Then there's Alex and Rhoda Todd. They won $13 million. They decided to take the payments spread over 20 years. It turned out the payments were 666666 Now that in and of itself should cause you to take pause about taking that. That's 666-666. They filed for bankruptcy in 2006 after living a lavish lifestyle in Vegas and enduring a sleuth of legal expenses resulting from family drama. The couple was later charged with tax evasion and Rhoda was sentenced to two years in prison and fined $1.1 million. Then the last one, this is a classic. Denise Rossi won $1.3 million. Upon winning the lottery, Rossi's first act was to divorce her husband, who had no knowledge of the win. In 1999, the ex-husband sued and the judge declared that Rossi had violated state asset disclosure laws. As a result, the ex-husband received all of the winnings and she got nothing. In the end, human riches may just leave us with an empty feeling. But with God, all of us have access to a priceless gift that never leaves us feeling empty. But which path do we choose in our lives? Let's go ahead and read today's passage, Galatians 3, 15-22. Brothers, I'm using a human illustration. No one sets aside or makes additions to even a human covenant that has been ratified. Now the promises were spoken to Abraham and to his seed, He does not say "into seeds, as though referring to many, but referring to one, and to your seed, who is Christ. And I say this, the law which came 430 years later does not revoke a covenant that was previously ratified by God and cancel the promise. For if the inheritance is from the law, it is no longer from the promise, but God granted it to Abraham through the promise. Why then was the law given? It was added because of transgressions until the seed to whom the promise was made would come. The law was put into effect through angels by means of a mediator. Now a mediator is not for just one person, but God is one. Is the law therefore contrary to God's promises? Absolutely not. For if a law had been given that was able to give life, then righteousness would certainly be by the law. But the scripture has imprisoned everything under sin's power so that the promise by faith in Jesus Christ might be given to those who believe. I've entitled this sermon, Are There Two Paths to Glory? There's three ideas that show up repeatedly in the passage. There's the promise coupled with the covenant. There's the idea of seed or seeds. And then there's the law. As a little bit of an introduction, background to how Paul addressed issues, we need to understand that his method of writing arguments, he used not only just here but numerous times in his writings. Paul was trained as a rabbi. He was an expert in the scholastic methods of the rabbinical academies. So Paul used their methods of argument which would make complete sense to a first century Jew But to those of us living in the 21st century, it may appear confusing from time to time. Second note that Paul begins this passage with the term brothers. Something he hasn't done in Galatians since chapter 1 verse 11. Brothers is a term of endearment, part of a family. And Paul is doing this even though he had just in the last two chapters, called the Galatians confused, foolish, bewitched, and they had betrayed Paul's teaching. It's almost, almost a classical methodology for counseling. You address the shortcomings, the problem areas, and you build, the, build up the person, you make them feel valued once again. So before Paul is going to bring out the hammer, he's going to call them brothers again. And it points to the question of what makes a family a family. Why is Paul addressing them as brothers? Who are the true children of Abraham? Who are the heirs of the promise of God? And who are entitled to call one another brother and sister? So, a quick review of a covenant it was the way by which God dealt with his human creation. And there were two types. There was the unconditional covenant, which in this passage is the promise. It's based solely on God's character and actions. The promise. There's nothing that's required from mankind. Then there's the conditional covenant. And in conditional covenants, there's an inherent tension between God's sovereignty and human free will. There's a struggle Our nature is to go against God. Our nature is to wrestle against it. And that's the law. Jeremiah 31-34, the prophet speaks about how this tension is going to be resolved through the new covenant. By removing the issue of human performance as a means of acceptance. Look, the days are coming. This is the Lord's declaration when I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel and with the house of Judah. This one will not be like the covenant I made with their ancestors when I took them by the hand to bring them out of the land of Egypt, a covenant they broke even though I had married them, the Lord's declaration. Instead, this is a covenant I will make with the house of Israel after those days, the Lord's declaration. I will put my teaching within them and write it on their hearts. I will be their God and they will be my people. No longer will one teach his neighbor or his brother, saying, Know the Lord. For they will all know me from the least to the greatest of them. This is the Lord's declaration. For I will forgive their wrongdoing and never again remember their sin. See, with the new covenant, God's law was fulfilled through Christ but it becomes our internal desire to want to follow God it's not a measure of external performance or how we can measure up to the requirements of the law the new covenant is absolutely free in the finished work of Jesus but it does require repentance and faith it is both a legal pronouncement and a call to Christ likeness it is a statement of acceptance a desire for holiness believers are not saved by their performance but they are saved to obedience see this in Ephesians two to 10 for you are saved by grace through faith and it is not from yourselves it is God's gift not from works so that no one can boast for we are his creation created in Christ Jesus for good works which God prepared ahead of time but that we should walk in them. See, godly living is the evidence of salvation. It is not the means to or of salvation. And this is a backdrop for the argument that Paul is presenting here. Paul is using the example of a covenant to illustrate his point of superiority and priority of the Abrahamic covenant over the law. Remember that the Judaizers had come into Galatia and they had undermined what Paul had preached earlier, the gospel of faith, grace. And they were adding on to that, that not only was their faith and grace, but that they had to follow the works of the law. And their point was that the Mosaic covenant, the law, was added to the Abrahamic promise. To refute this point, Paul uses the example of a permanently binding contract. Or will Probably all of us as adults have entered into a contract at some time, or we should probably have a will. Have you ever tried to break a contract that you signed before the contract was fulfilled? Is there a penalty? When Kyung and I first moved to Thailand in 2015, in November, it's not a great time to try to find housing in Chiang Mai. Because school has already started, there's not a lot of choice. So as we went around, there was three or four houses, and the one we chose was in World Club land, only because that was the best of those available. And we were advised to sign a two-year contract because it would save us money. Well, after about a year or so, we got settled in. We realized our budget would allow us to get a little bit more house, and we wanted to leave World Club land because we wanted to avoid the traffic on Hangdon Road. Anybody who lives down there can probably relate to that. Um, so we notified we were going through expat homes. We told them we wanted to find a new house and we are going to break the lease. They notified the house owner. We looked. It took us several weeks. We finally found a place that was worth breaking the contract. Um, and we were hoping, because we gave enough notice and we left the place really clean, that we would get of our deposit back nope that didn't happen the landlord kept every single bond. Um, but we broke the contract so we shouldn't be upset about that but there was a penalty think of a marriage contract you have made a vow a man and a woman one decides to break the marriage contract are there consequences oh yes There's emotional damage to both the adults and if there's children involved. And there's financial hardships. See, men can break contracts or promises, but God is not man. God made a promise to Abraham in Genesis. It wasn't based upon anything that Abraham did. It was solely based upon God's grace to mankind. It was an unconditional promise. There were no strings attached. There was no fine print. But if we expect men to keep contracts and promises, and it upsets us or surprises us if men break contracts, then why would we think that God would not keep his promise? God is perfect. God does not lie. God does not change his mind. God doesn't say, I made a mistake. the Abrahamic covenant was not good enough I need to add to it however we read that the law was given 430 years later the law contained burdensome requirements it was a code of behavior that made demands and it made threats Paul's argument is that the law does not overturn the covenant relationship established with Abraham for two reasons once a covenant or a will has been ratified it cannot be altered. Remember the example of my breaking the rental lease. Although we broke it the lease was not changed. The law was also only a temporary measure that was not essential to the unconditional covenant granted to Abraham. You may ask but con- can't contracts or wills be changed? Both in ancient Israel and today yes we can change our will we can ask for contracts to be changed however there was a Jewish inheritance law called in the Jewish my my Hebrew may not pronounce this exactly right called Matinet Bari by which a person could make an irrevocable testament to another person prior to their death and Jesus alludes to this practice in the in the parable of the prodigal son Luke 15:12. The younger of them said to his father, Father, give me the share of the estate I have coming to me. So he distributed the assets to them. So the prodigal son's father fulfilled the contents of what his will would have been before he died. And since the living God can't die, the only irrevocable will would have be based upon this idea of matanat bari however we go back to verse 14 in chapter 3 Paul links the sacrifice of Jesus to the promise made to Abraham resulting in Gentiles receiving his blessing receiving this blessing through Jesus in Galatians 3.14 the purpose was that the blessing of Abraham would come to the Gentiles by Christ Jesus so that we could receive the promised spirit through faith however it would be a serious mistake to disconnect the idea of death from the covenant theology Paul was pursuing in this passage. The chapter began with his reminding the believers of Galatia that Christ had been portrayed as crucified before their very eyes. And just two verses before, he had inextricably linked Christ's death on the cross with his bearing of the law's curse. Galatians 2.21 I do not set aside the grace of God for if righteousness comes through the law, then Christ died for nothing. And then in Hebrews nine fifteen to 28 the author works out in greater detail the role of Christ as a mediator of the new covenant whose death was a liberating ransom bringing salvation for all those who believe in him. In Hebrews, the contrast is between the Mosaic covenant, which required the shedding of blood for the forgiveness of sins, and the great high priest, who obtained eternal redemption by shedding his own blood once for all. That's Jesus. Yet all of this was present in shadow and type, but real and effective in the Abrahamic covenant as well. Going all the way back to Genesis 12, in the context of the promised blessing, we read a phrase that occurs again and again in the Abraham narrative. So he built an altar there to the Lord. Think of the altars that Abraham Constructed as he journeyed from his homeland, each altar was an expression of the faith he had in the promise God had given him. The first occurred in Genesis 12-7 and was erected in Canaan once Abraham reached the land God promised him. Then the Lord appeared to Abram and said, I will give this land to your offspring. So he built an altar there to the Lord who had appeared to him. The second one is in Genesis twelve eight from there he moved on to the hill country east of Bethel and pitched his tent with Bethel on the west and Ai on the east he built an altar to Yahweh there and he called on the name of Yahweh the third is in Genesis thirteen eighteen near Hebron so Abram moved his tent and went to live near the oaks of Mamre at Hebron where he built an altar to the Lord and the fourth one that's contained in scripture is in 22, Genesis 22, 9 When they arrived at the place that God had told him about, Abraham built the altar there and arranged the wood. He bound his son Isaac and placed him on the altar on top of the wood. This was on Mount Moriah, where Abraham was prepared to sacrifice his only son. It is also where the temple in Jerusalem was built. God's covenant with Abraham was not ratified by a bloodless word, but rather by a series of altars strung across the Middle East all pointing forward to that other altar on Mount Moriah, where God in bloody garments removed our crimson things. Paul's point behind this reading is that if you belong to Christ then you are Abraham's seed and heir according to the promise that was given to Abraham. In verse 16 Paul talks about seed and not seeds. The term seed is better understood as descendant. It is singular in meaning and not plural. And Abraham's true seed is Jesus. Reading in Matthew 1.1 The historical record of Jesus Christ, the son of David, the son of Abraham. It was a common practice in rabbinical exegesis for a theological argument to be based on the singular or plural form of the word in scripture there was a popular Jewish claim that they alone with a few proselytes were the true sons of Abraham and nobody else was. Paul's argument is to show that the greater fulfillment of the promise given to Abraham is not biological in nature but Christological in nature. Paul's emphasis on a single seed combines two ideas that are a unifying theme in Galatians chapters 3 and 4. The first is solidarity in Christ and the second is unity in the church. Solidarity in Christ. Each person is either under a curse or they're in Christ. Under a curse because the law condemns us in Christ by faith just like Abraham. If we're in Christ through faith we belong to a new family it is not a bloodline it's a spiritual family we are a child and heir of the promise given to Abraham through grace second idea is unity in the church verse 16 we read the oneness of the seed but it must be linked to the oneness of God in verse 20 and the oneness of the body in Christ in verse 28 the original covenant with Abraham foresaw one seed a single family of faith a united people of God. We remember reading a scripture where Paul was so upset at Antioch when Peter didn't want to eat with the Gentiles. The Jews at Antioch were still applying the law and causing division within the church between Jew and Gentile. Whether we are white, black, yellow, brown, those who have placed their faith in Jesus belong to one and the same family we are brothers and sisters in Christ through spirit not through blood Paul then asks a rhetorical question in verse 19 why was the law given you remember back when we were in Leviticus we had all those fun chapters on bodily discharges and leprosy homosexuality incest bestiality those are uncomfortable passages to discuss but from a preaching standpoint, it's very easy to exegete those, pre- those passages. You don't have to go back to the original Greek or Hebrew to understand that no is no. Let me read again the passage beginning in Galatians three nineteen 19-22. Why then was the law given? It was added because of transgressions until the seed to whom the promise was made would come. The law was put into effect through angels by means of a mediator. Now, a mediator is not for just one person, but God is one. Is the law, therefore, contrary to God's promises? Absolutely not. For if a law had been given that was able to give life, then righteousness would certainly be by the law. But the scripture has imprisoned everything under sin's power so that the promise by faith in Jesus Christ might be given to those who believe. So when you read that passage, I don't think anybody squirms in their chair. Nobody feels uncomfortable. Nobody says, I don't want my young child to hear the discussion of this passage. But one commentary stated that this is one of the most difficult passages written by Paul. And that there are almost 300 interpretations of this one passage of scripture. So from a preaching standpoint, Leviticus is way easier than this passage here in Galatians. And I did a little bit of math, and if I only average three minutes, a quick overview of each interpretation, we'll be out of here sometime tomorrow morning. The question comes naturally about why the law from Paul's argument that he started in Galatians 2.16. Know that no one is justified by the works of the law, but by faith in Jesus Christ and we have believed in Christ Jesus so that we might be justified by faith in Christ and not by the works of the law because by the works of the law no human being will be justified Jews and Gentiles alike are declared righteous by faith in Jesus not by trying to observe the law the Galatians needed to remember that they received the Holy Spirit and witnessed miracles through faith and not through any works of the law all the way back in Genesis 15.6 Abram believed the Lord and he credited it to him as righteousness. The law did not exist at that point and Abraham didn't do anything besides believe but he was still declared righteous before God by his faith in God. The law places a curse on everyone who does not obey it perfectly which means everyone because none of us can obey the law perfectly. The law which was given hundreds of years later does not change God's original promise to Abraham. If it had, that would mean God went back on his promise. And God could never do that. Even sinful men are not supposed to go back on their word, as Paul alluded to in verse 15. But everyone has a choice. We can try to follow law and works and merit which almost every other religion in the world is based upon where man is trying to reach God through his efforts or we can embrace the promise accept the faith show faith, accept the grace and the freedom of salvation through Jesus again the question, why was a law given? one purpose with two characteristics the purpose, it was given because of transgressions And the Greek word is parabasis. It's used in regarding human conduct, and it shows a violation or going outside the normal boundaries that are imposed upon someone. The characteristics of the law the first one was to show a perfect standard. If the fall hadn't happened, if they hadn't eaten the apple, if they had stayed in the Garden of Eden, humankind would have acted within these boundaries they wouldn't have been violating it also makes people aware of when they stray from the path it makes us aware of our deviations from the right course of conduct it revealed to mankind the true nature of sin and hopefully would cause us to fear God's wrath for our actions and make us more sensitive to sin when we commit it the law stirs up the sin that we commit think of our condition as being like a glass of water that we sit on a table and leave it there for weeks and weeks and weeks and over time the, gla- the glass of water would collect dust but the dust settles on the bottom of the glass and the water would appear to be very clear we might even have it next to a window when we see the sun come through and it looks just shiny and clear it looks clean and drinkable but what would happen if we put a spoon in that glass of water and stirred it up the dust would swirl around and the water would appear as it really is it is filthy and undrinkable that's what the law does it doesn't create sin sin is lying there on the bottom of our hearts the law stirs it up in order to reveal our true condition the heart, as Jeremiah said, is more deceitful than all else and desperately sick or desperately wicked. Who can know it? Who can understand it? Well, no one can understand the heart and the nature of it apart from the law of God. That's why he gave it. It reveals our condition and in, in revealing our condition as being full of sin reveals that we're in need of a Savior and we're not right with God and that's something must be done again why is the law inferior or subordinate the law only defines sin it does nothing to remove or cure it I have a a medical condition and I know some people probably have worse but I have a herniated disc in the bottom of my back And because of that, I have an impingement. So like from the balls of my foot to the tips of my toes, I cannot have normal feeling. It tingles all the time. It's it's bizarre. Um, And I've had an MRI done years ago, and I had another one done just this past spring to see if it was getting worse. You go to the doctor, and they give you the results. And it's like, no, it's not really much worse, but you do have impingement, and here's the symptoms that you're going to experience and the doctor explained it and I have like positive and negative so she took one of those like pointy foil things jabbed me in the knee I could feel that really sharp then she did that right before my toes and it felt like somebody just pushing their thumb there was no pain it's just pressure but then sometimes it feels like I have hundreds of needles shooting through my toes and there's no rhyme or reason for it and the good news is there's nothing they can do about it Um, She suggested vitamin B as a natural one. You can go and get injections in your spinal column, which are temporary in nature. Or you can do surgery, which doesn't always work. I have several sisters, and one of them had it done and didn't remove the problem. So you think about the law as going to a doctor who can diagnose everything that's wrong with you and tell you that here's what you have wrong here's the symptoms here's what's going to happen to you and they have absolutely no treatment for your condition what good is that kind of doctor? you might only go to him once but that is exactly what the law is doing the law is telling us we are not right but it doesn't give us any way to correct that broken relationship with God The law was also added after the promise to Abraham. It was only meant as a temporary measure. Verse 19, Until the seed to whom the promise was made would come. It was never intended to be a permanent measure. It was not a solution, but it pointed to the need for a solution. The law originated on Mount Sinai. It was fulfilled and terminated on the cross at Calvary Colossians 2.14 he erased the certificate of debt with its obligations that was against us and opposed to us and has taken out of the way by nailing it to the cross the law pointed to the need for Jesus and Jesus fulfilled the law the law was also not given directly by God in contrast to the Abrahamic covenant God spoke directly to Abraham to give the promise. The law was given to angels by God. Exodus 19 describes Mount Sinai as surrounded by thunder lightning, a thick cloud and billows of fire. Later Old Testament texts such as Deuteronomy 33.2 show that this was an allusion to angels. He said, The Lord came from Sinai and appeared to them from Seir. He shone down from Mount Paran and came with ten thousand holy ones, with lightnings from his right hand for them. Acts seven thirty-eight also alludes to the mediator, the angels. He is the one who was in the congregation in the wilderness together with the angel who spoke to him on Mount Sinai, and with our ancestors. Acts seven fifty three. You received the law under the direction of angels, and yet have not kept it. And finally, Hebrews 2 2. For if the message spoken through angels was legally binding, and every transgression and disobedience received a just punishment. The law was received by Moses from the angels and communicated to the people. It required a mediator. An agreement founded on law always involves two or more people. The giver, in the receiver or the acceptor both must cl- keep the agreement or it is broken in contrast the promise only required the commitment of God and it depended only on God in saying this Paul was in no way degrading Moses or what he had done Paul was only demonstrating the temporary nature of the law and the superiority of the promise see in Hebrews 3 5, 6 Moses was faithful as a servant in all God's household as a testimony to what would be said in the future. But Christ was faithful as a son over his household. Paul is quoting from the Shema in Deuteronomy 6.4 when he says, Listen Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. God is one. The promise to Abraham was unconditional and it stands just as sure as a unity in the sovereignty of God. God's character is unchangeable and is the foundation of our comfort. God did not send a substitute, a surrogate, an angel, or a human go-between to fulfill the promise. In the person of Jesus Christ, God himself came to us to fulfill the promise. The law is conditional and the promise is unconditional. The law depended on Israel's obedience and we all know how well that worked out. Remember Exodus, Moses going up on the mountain to receive the Ten Commandments. Before he even made it down to the bottom of the hill, Israel was dancing around a golden calf. So we ask the question is the law in conflict with the promise? Paul, absolutely not. And absolutely not really doesn't. doesn't have the full meaning of what the original language was the original Greek is an expression of horror and shock that someone would even consider the idea or do that action and anyone who has ever been a parent of a teenager can probably relate to that concept the expression occurs 15 times in the New Testament 13 in Paul's writings and almost always translated as God forbid Instead of contradicting God's promise to Abraham, the law actually serves to fulfill it, but not by producing righteousness. The law can't give eternal life. Paul showed this in Galatians 3.10-13. The law was not defective. Romans 7.12 So then the law is holy, and the commandment is holy and just and good. The problem is not with the law, it's with our sinful nature the law is only showing how hopeless we are apart from grace and that we can never meet God's standard through effort people who strive to meet God's standard to gain his acceptance to earn salvation by keeping the law are like Sisyphus if you remember Greek mythology Sisyphus was a king whose eternal punishment was to roll a huge rock up a hill and right before he got to the top he would lose control and the rock would go all the way back to the bottom of the hill. And he would have to start over and over and over. That's our hopelessness by trying to keep the law. Sisyphus was condemned to fruitless labor and despair. And that is man under the law. The law cannot be kept. So the law was given so we might see our sins as a violation of God's holy will. And when we see it in that light, that is the first act of repentance and faith. And when we repent and we trust in Jesus, God answers that with the gift of eternal life. And scripture has imprisoned us under sin's power. Not just prison, but we're placed on death row. Deuteronomy twenty-seven, twenty-six. Anyone who does not put the words of this law into practice is cursed. In Psalm 143, 2 do not bring your servant into judgment, for no one alive is righteous in your sight. The law prepared mankind to receive the gift of Jesus, the promise seed, with an attitude of need and gratitude. Again and again we see Paul coming back to the same point. The problem of human life is to get into a right relationship with God, and we can't do that by trying to follow the law. The law is a fearful type of relationship. As long as we are afraid of God, there can be no peace. But how are do we achieve this right relationship? Is it by a meticulous and even self-torturing obedience to the law? By performing endless actions and observing every smallest regulation the law lays down. We aren't able to do this anyway. Spurgeon wrote about this, you might well hope to drink the Atlantic dry. That's an analogy of such great depth we can't begin to fathom it. If we take that way, we will always be in default for human imperfection can never fully satisfy God's perfection. But if we abandon this hopeless struggle and bring ourselves and our sins to God, his grace opens its arms to us and we find ourselves at peace with a God who is no longer judge but is now our father. Paul's argument is this is what happened to Abraham. It was on that basis that God's covenant with Abraham was made. And nothing that came in later can change that covenant any more than anything can alter a will that has already been witnessed and signed. If the law was the end of our story, our lot in life would be miserable. However, that isn't the correct path. The Father has made a perfect and free way out of the prison of sin's power. Our path leads to eternal torment. One path leads to eternal torment and one leads to eternal peace it takes, no, it takes no works on our part it isn't based on effort it's like winning the power ball but eternally better with no consequences it shatters the prison walls of sin it's a free gift of grace through what Jesus accomplished on the cross as he fulfilled the requirements of the law and ushered in the covenant of grace and mercy based upon faith in his completed works There is only one path to glory, and that's through faith in Jesus Christ. Let us pray. You've been listening to a sermon recorded at Chiang Mai Christian Fellowship in Chiang Mai, Thailand. For more information, please view our website at www.ccfth.org.